Oh, uh, St. Patrick's Day? Awesome. St. Patrick's Day is awesome. My St. Patrick's Day was colorful, but St. Patrick's Day itself was awesome. All right. We're going through uh, history. Obviously, we're at the age of, of revolution. Things are changing quite a bit in the 19th century. Last week, we started something that I started calling, you're doing it wrong. Because anytime that people start having this sense of revolution, the sense of newness, look at, look at the really cool stuff that we've got. Look at how we can do things better than we've ever done it before. Invariably, people immediately start saying, okay, then you're doing it wrong because you're doing it differently than I Right before class, we were even talking about how easy it is for different groups, not even necessarily opposing groups, just different groups, to automatically have a sense of opposition to one another. This gets all the more important when you start talking about things like revival. When the more important something is to people, the more they're going to tend to look at other people and say, you're a horrible person because you're not doing it the way that I do it. So, we've been through some, some great revivals. There's this whole move of God going on, especially up in, in, in like the western New York area. There's all these people who are coming to the Lord, which means that within about 17 seconds, everybody's going to be turning and looking at one another going, but you're doing this wrong. There's a better way of doing this. Let's tweak that. We're in 1820. Joseph Smith has a vision. Anybody know who Joseph Smith is? Okay. Mormons. That's right. Joseph Smith has a vision. Joseph seems to have gotten blonder with every single picture you see painted of him. He's getting blonder and buffer, and I'm not exactly sure how that works. But every time that you see a painting, it's, he starts off like, um, uh, you know, this is kind of dark brown haired kind of slender-faced fellow, and he's like a surfer by the time you get over here. <laughs> What'd you say? Looks like Trump's there. Looks like Trump. Okay. <laughs> I'm just walking past that. I'm, <laughs> I'm moving right past it. So, Smith, not Trump, Smith is born in Vermont, grows up in western New York, and like I said, there's been a lot of activity there. In fact, Charles Finney, who we'll talk about soon, is an evangelist it refers to this area in western New York as the burnt out district. Because he says so many, so many revivals have gone there, there's no kindling left to burn. There, there's nobody left that we can possibly preach to because they've all either heard it and become Christians or they heard it and they have no interest in being Christians. Therefore, he's like, it's pointless to do any more revivals over here. It is completely Christian out. The burnt out district. Anyway, uh, you want to remember that for the future. Because we're going to find a ton of Christian offshoots that come out of this region of New York. Um, there's a, a, a number of people that say, well, Christianity is great, but we can tweak it. We can make it more interesting. We can make it more colorful. We can make it better. So ultimately, Jehovah's Witness movement comes out of the Western New York. Um, the Mormons come out of Western New York. Uh, the spiritualist movement in, in America comes out of Western New York. All these different movements that say, now you're doing it wrong. This is more colorful. This is more interesting. If you trace it back far enough, come out of this region originally. Anyway, in fact, Mormonism still, we talked about this last week, Mormonism still emphasizes that when they're starting a mission work in an area, they always want to try to target areas that have specifically already been hit by Christian evangelical evangelism, if they possibly can. Why might that be, do you think? Because they're interested in... In, in religion. Okay, because they're already interested in religion. They know the lingo. Yep. You get the, they're going to tweak it to be, just like when we had a Mormon there, they went on about Jesus, and I'm like, well, we don't have the same Jesus. Right. So they're, they're, you're hitting people that are already expressed that they have an interest in religion, already expressed not just religion, but Christianity, not just Christianity, but biblical lingo. Yeah. people with Christianity, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to stick. And unfortunately, what it does is it makes it, it can make it more difficult for 
um, evangelical Christians, for any kind of Christians, to come in and, and preach there some more. It can be very nice. It can, be, can create exactly the sort of base that the Mormons are looking for. But it can also be something where all you've done is kind of make people vaguely familiar. If somebody else comes along and says, and here's a better version of that, and you haven't stayed and created a presence and created a, a biblical foundation, you've actually made it more complicated to try to, to keep them in a, with a biblical Christianity. And so, yeah, Mormons adore going to places that have been specifically hit with evangelical missionaries who have then left. That's fertile ground. Which says something about how we should probably do missions in the Christian church. Anyway, so he's the son of a Bible-quoting mother and a father who didn't care at all about religion, which is going to mess with you if you're growing up. So your mom, she's always got her King James Bible there. He's very familiar with the, with the Bible. And her dad, and his, and his dad is like, I'm too busy doing other things. I couldn't care less. I'm not going to go to church. Uh, who cares about church? There's all these denominations anyway. So he's going to grow up very familiar with things, and yet having this sense of, grumpy, why would I even do any of this anyway? Again, think about what we just got finished saying about what that does to an area. Joseph Smith Sr., his dad, spent most of his time hunting for buried, buried treasure in the woods and taking his sons with him, because that was kind of a big thing in the early 19th century. Everybody thought there was buried treasure. Not... I'm going to go find a gold mine, but I'm going to go find where the Indians hid all their treasure. I'm not even exactly sure where that all started, but everybody's quite certain the Indians hid all their treasure. Might even have been because everybody had heard about how the, the Spaniards were looking for their lost cities of gold, and, and we can't find our Indians up here in Vermont, western New York, Connecticut, they don't have any gold. They must have hidden their gold. So it's a lot. <laughs> Joseph Jr. became particularly good at using his peep stones to look for treasure. They're magic stones where you look through this hole in the center and you can see stuff that other people can't see. That was kind of his shtick. People would pay him to go through the woods and peep through his peep hole and find where the treasure... You laugh, but this is the thing. So he would look through his peep hole and find... where It's kind of like a dowsing rod. Did he uh, ever find any? No, 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 not really. In fact, he got sued twice for fraud. Um... But that didn't stop him from doing it. Uh, in fact, one guy specifically uh, said, in, attested to under oath in, in 1833 that uh, Smith acknowledged in court that, quote, he could not see in a stone now nor ever could, and that his former pretensions in that respect were all false. He then promised to give up his old habits of digging for money and looking into stones, unquote. So, yeah, even, even in court, he's like, okay, yeah, this is it's all just kind of a sham. And yet, people pay him. You know, people pay him to go do it because everybody's just like, it's very much a time of folk magic. Why is that? Why is it that even in areas where Christianity has been preached ad nauseum, so it's a burned out district, that people are still into folk magic as opposed to uh, good science and Bibleness? What? And prayer? Okay. Okay. It can, it, it can seem like easy, the most expeditious way of doing things. Why else? My people, you live in, the, you, 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 you know, you're not going to college, you're not doing this kind of stuff. You live in the, in the backwoods. People preach to you. You've got a Bible sitting there, but why do you do folk magic stuff? Because you're still not quite as educated, and you're carrying with you some of the traditions from whatever culture you have grown up in. Yep. Yep, absolutely. So this is what my grandma did, and it seemed to work for her. I'm going to meld all that together. And I haven't gone to college. I haven't done a lot of this. And maybe I haven't even read my Bible that much, even though I've heard it preached. Why do people still have superstition today? Why do people, fully intelligent, well-read people, bury statuettes of saints in their front yard so that their house will sell? <laughs> you know, in Peoria, we have fortune uh, things on Knoxville Avenue. Yep. I think there's one out at the university. Yep. Why do people go to terror? Why do Christians go to terror readers or, or psychics? Why? Well, and then also you can argue people who are very well educated and think religion is a bit of a sham. I mean, 
Gary was just listening to the secular stage that I played very superstitious and I was cracking up because yeah. I'm like, and that's the way someone who's very educated tends to look at Christianity as well. Absolutely. This yeah. Is true. What is the biggest lie we have today? Um, that William Shatner doesn't wear a toupee. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say global warming. Well, no, but that's... But that is a religion. But and, and, and the thing is, is though, you come back to saying, what is it that is making people feel superstitious about some of this stuff? And a lot of it does come back to what you grew up with and the culture around you. Other people thinking that's what religion is in a nutshell. But even, you, you go, but even if you are a, a, a Christian, why do you do this? And you go, because maybe that's the way you view religion. If you haven't got a strong foundation, maybe you just view it as superstition. And so maybe I read my Bible and I pray to my God and I also bury my statuette in my front yard and I, and I, I, I make sure that if I accidentally walk under a, a, a ladder, I do this, I do that. It's all superstition. It's all the stuff that you do. It's all the things that you do to try to get through the day. If that's the way you're viewing it, and if you don't have a solid foundation, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, kind of like what you said, if, if it's that um, area where there's revivals and, and people are almost getting burnt out by that, they get just enough information to be dangerous uh-huh. and not have um, the discipleship be a trap <coughs> of actually learning more and more about what the Bible has to say. Absolutely. And to go back to the bearing the same thing, it's like, if your Catholicism teaches you that you need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you do what you do because you're trying to, to worship the Lord, and this is the, the, the very kinesthetic ways that you're worshiping the Lord, praise God. If your Catholicism teaches you, religion is all about stand up, sit down, you've got to go to this holy place and have the magic person tell you these words, and then you go, it's like, if it's just superstition wrapped in religious terms, why wouldn't you do this kind of stuff? Anyway, so 1820, with uh, the, 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 his family's having all, all sorts of financial hardship, his parents are arguing about whether or not to go to church, all these different things. Smith finally goes out into the woods to ask God which church he should attend. Because mom says you need to go to church and read your Bible, and dad says it's all just okay, you know, it's, it's nothing. And he sees two glowing figures appearing before him, according to, to Smith. Actually, he originally said he saw one figure. Later he said he saw lots of figures, and then he eventually settled on two figures. Every time he tells the story, it's a little bit different. In fact, I will put these. I'll put this up in the notes so you can go online and look at it. But there's a, a whole long list of different versions of that first vision that he's had that he's expressed over the years. In fact, he never even said anything about a, a 1920 vision until like the mid 1830s. So I'm just saying it's dubious. Okay, remain dubious. Anyway. So he sees two, maybe three, maybe seven, maybe one, two glowing figures identifying themselves as God the Father and as his son Jesus Christ because they're two different physical entities, right? That becomes important in Mormon theology later. They're they're exactly alike. They look exactly alike, but they're two very physical people and they're two very different physical people. Anyway, so they told him that all churches are inherently corrupt. Every single church that's out there. All the pastors are working for Satan. So anytime you ever hear a Mormon say, well, we're Christian, we respect the Christian church, you need to look at him and go, so you disregard what Joseph Smith said. Because he said, all churches other than yours are corrupt, and all pastors are working for Satan, right? And, and invariably, when I've said that to Mormons, they'll go, yes, actually, that is true. So, I mean, they know it, they just don't like to tell you that. Um... And, 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 oh, and they're, work, and, and they're all working for the devil, which is another one of God's sons. God has a whole bunch of sons, including Abraham and Moses and Jesus and Satan and Joseph Smith. All physical sons of God. Anyway, so Joseph Smith should use his peep stones to find buried golden plates. Luckily, not only is he one of God's physical sons, but he's had training in looking through peep stones to find buried gold. So didn't find it, but, you know. That was well, but the point is, he's got this, he's got the he's background. Got the right stuff. And, and he's going to find these golden plates that are going to give a new testament of Jesus Christ that are going to help establish a new and true religion to take the place of all these messed up religions. Which is why, if you look at the Book of Mormon, the, the subtitle is, Another Testament of Jesus Christ, right? Because it's, it's, there's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament, both of which have been corrupted because they've been translated by humans who are all messed up. 
But the Book of Mormon is, it was uh, inspired by God and translated by God, no human activity, telling about the Jews who, with the great Jewish Navy, because there's a lot of very maritime Jews, right? No. Um, sailed to the New World 2,000 years before Columbus, and then Jesus appeared to them after his resurrection. But I'll talk about that more in seven years. Okay. 1822, Liberia was founded. Anybody know anything about Liberia? Everybody, anybody ever hear of Liberia? Okay, good. Seeing how well Sierra Leone worked out for the British, right? Because that worked out. If you remember Sierra Leone, everybody should go, wince. No, Sierra Leone did not work out so great. But the Americans said, you know what? Why don't we create a colony in Africa for our freed slaves? That's a great idea. Let's do that. Um... So, President James Monroe uh, helps the Society for the Colonization of Free People of Color of America. Again, this is an era where they're not going for the soundbite. There's longer names for things. Raise money to support the founding of a new colony on the west coast of Africa. Now, most of the support for this came from the South. Why is that? Oh, because they want to get rid of the free ones if they can't have them. There you go. It really shouldn't surprise you that you go, if there are slaveholders in the South and they are aware that there are a number of freed slaves running around America, they don't want that, right? So they're like, we'd really like to not give our existing slaves the idea that black people can be free. So we'd rather, if there are any free black people in the United States, we'd rather that they go to a whole other continent. That's very much a Southern idea. Which is interesting because there's this whole back to Africa movement that was co-opted by like militant groups like the Black Panthers in the 60s and 70s. And you go, right, that was in large part started by slaveholders in the South trying to keep their existing slaves down. History's fine, okay? It's just really weird bedfellows. Yeah. Can I just point out that the freed slaves, who they're trying to make go back to Africa? have been born and raised in America. We'll talk about that in a sec. <laughs> Most of the freed slaves don't want to go back. What with having been born and raised in America? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Do they have any... Absolutely, absolutely. Um, now, there's different levels of coercion and arm twisting, but in general, yeah, they did have some choice. Yeah. Was it like today, uh, the new resolution to send immigrants back to Turkey? Well, that's a little less choice. No, but I mean, it's it's, it's, it's very similar. similar. It's this idea of saying we strongly encourage, and by strongly encourage, I mean strongly encourage that you do this. Uh, but yeah, they had no sense, no sense of connection to their ancestral continent because they're like my grandfather, my father. I have been born here. Now you could say that's a that's a travesty that it had been their their sense of of ethnicity had been literally beaten out of them by their by their slave owners. But whatever the case, they didn't have a strong sense of, of connection with that. And even if they had, they didn't all come from one place. They were all over Africa. Africa's a big continent. When you say go back to Africa, you go, which part of Africa? Like it's, it's like I said, okay, tomorrow, tomorrow, all of you are going back to Liechtenstein. And you're going to go live there from now on, because most of you come from Europe. How many people here, your family, originally came from Europe? Yes, Wendy, you have. Okay, so <laughs> Liechtenstein it is. You're all going back to Liechtenstein. Enjoy that. You just go, oh, I'm from Scandinavia. Oh, I'm from, they speak, what are they speaking, Liechtenstein? Lichty? You know, I don't know what's it. What? It's like that, only on a bigger scale, because Africa's bigger than Europe. Anyway. There were still some freed slaves that said, well, I, I'd like to try. I mean, I, I want to try to have a new fresh start. An amazing number of, of freed slaves said, I don't want to live in a country where slavery is still legal. You know, I always have to worry that I have to have my papers on me and say, no, 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 I'm free. Don't, don't send me back to, to slavery. The idea of going back to Africa and being free, what, what, what is the problem, by the way, with that particular mindset? Yeah. Yep. To be Contrary to what you see in most movies, Europeans rarely enslaved anybody. Africans enslaved people. Europeans bought slaves. We 
bought slaves in droves. But it's not like you had a bunch of Portuguese usually going and pounding through the, through the jungle capturing people. No, no, no. That was mostly African tribes who would then sell them to the Portuguese, who would then sell them to the English, who would then ship them over to, to the New World. So if you say, I want to go someplace where there's no slavery, you go, well, then maybe this is the wrong continent for you. Pardon me? I said, hence David Livingston. Hence David Livingston, who we'll get to here very soon, who's wandering around Africa going, stop it! <laughs> okay. Unfortunately, they couldn't find any land in Africa. They kept asking people if they could buy land, and people kept saying, no. And so they finally said, all right, well, there's an island just off the coast of, of Sierra Leone. Go there. Start your own colony. Swampy, nasty little island. Enjoy it! And they, most of those people died from malaria, because... There's a reason why the people in Sierra Leone didn't live in that island. And so the U.S. Navy forcibly dictated terms to nearby natives. They're like, you will sell to us because we have a lot of guns. Now, get good money for it, a good rate of exchange, but the whole, would you like to sell your land, is off the table now. It's, uh, I'm going to buy your house. No, you're not. I'm going to buy your house. Yeah, I was Here. going to say, I believe you have a word for that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm going to give you $200,000 for your house. It's only worth $150,000, but you will sell and be out tomorrow. Yeah, that's, that's what happened. Which, of course, is an awesome way to start a colony, right? <laughs> you come, you force people to sell, you build a nice little town, and then you sail away. None. None. So most of those colonists are killed by all the people around them who didn't appreciate them being there, even those who had specifically taken money for this. They're like, sure, no, we'll take it, and then we'll kill all of them and take all their stuff. It was not a nice way of doing it. Eventually, though, they built a bunch of forts, and they called it Liberia, free land, because it's liberty. So, And even the Liberian flag here... See, looks very much like the American flag, but this is the one star. It's just, it's just us. Uh, but the city, the colony of Liberia. Does anybody know what the the capital city of Liberia is? Monrovia, named after Monroe, the president of it. Yeah. So I remember that was a Scholastic Bowl question not too awful long ago. They're like, who is? What's the capital of Liberia? Who's it named after? Unfortunately, uh, strangely, Liberia's uh, history is a lot like Sierra Leone's history, i.e. a lot of fighting, a lot of tribal violence, a lot of political corruption, civil wars all over the place, because strangely, if you go and you stick somebody in a land that they don't know anything about, it torque off all the neighbors, it's not going to thank you. It's not going to end really well. Um, in particular... They had some really nasty civil wars in the last 20, 30 years. And recent warlords, such as this guy here, Joshua Blocky, um, who um, loved to run into battle naked, so he was actually oftentimes referred to as General Buck Naked. Um, <laughs> no, it is General Buck Naked. Think of it more like uh, took a page from from Native Americans that thought that their magic would keep them safe. And he never got shot and, and things. So, I mean, he'd run into battle wearing gym shoes. That's it. Um, and he preached a return to tribal paganism. Thus, his rebels practiced cannibalism and sacrificing infants and children. He made it a point to say, yes, before I ever go into battle, I'd take somebody's infant. He talked about all the different ways that he'd like to kill them and eat them. Uh, he was referred to uh, by more than one magazine as the most evil man in the world. He proudly acknowledged that he and his troops were responsible for the slaughter, maiming, and devouring of at least 20,000 people, of his own people in Liberia. And the war crimes tribunals say, yep, that's about right. This is an absolutely vile human being. And he was a big fan of saying, yes, even after you've killed somebody, you kill him, you maim his body, you rape his widow, and you eat his children. You show everybody that you beat this person. Everybody has to know this. I looked up pictures of this guy. Don't Google pictures of this guy. Because I don't need to see any more pictures of people eating people. This is not a lot of fun. And this is not 1860. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's 1990s. So um, this is not long ago. This is now. So is, is he still alive? Yes, he is. 
1996, he got a vision from Jesus saying that if he didn't stop what he's doing, he's going to go to hell, he's going to die. So he became a Christian, and now he preaches evangelical Christianity all across West Africa. Really? No kidding. No kidding. Now, what does that mean? Specifically, Christianity says we need to forgive one another. Now, there are some people out there that say this is the most dramatic turnaround of anybody in history. The most evil man on the planet is now teaching biblical Christianity. Praise God. There are other people who say he's preaching we need to forgive one another no matter how much horrendous stuff we do. And when people say, you used to eat people, he said, well, I used to be possessed by Satan. You can't hold me accountable for this. So, is this his way of weaseling out? And he, 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 at least the stuff that I was reading, and I didn't read a ton, I, at least the stuff I was reading, he kept talking about, God saved my life. He saved my life. He did Not as much about eternal life, as much as he didn't kill me. So, is he a good example of how God can can redeem even the most backward sinner? Or is he a good example of how people try to do anything and wrap themselves with a little bit of Jesus to avoid punishment in this place? I don't know. You don't know. God only, knows. only God knows. But it is interesting. The Absolutely. People come to know the Lord. So is this one of these Paul and Apollos things? Is this, is this really interesting? And what you see when you look at it has a lot to do with the eyes you're looking at it with in the first place. 1823, Reginald Heber becomes Bishop of Calcutta. He's not the first Anglican bishop there. Um, the guy named Thomas Middleton uh, was there before. He died of sunstroke in 1822. But he did make a significant difference in the region, and he was only there for like three years. He firmly established the, the, the Bishop's College, which is still there today. Um, he's the guy who ordained the first Indian to holy orders um, by saying, you know what? We need to get the, the, the locals involved in this. Um, generally set this tone of acceptance. Up until this point, most of the Anglicans, all the Catholics have been saying, you have to become European in order to be Christian. He's like, no, we can actually hit this culture where it's at. Solid guy. Unfortunately died at age 42 after slipping into a cold bath after a really hot day. Um, uh, now, what's interesting is, I realized as I was reading about him, I'd actually heard about him in football, in high school football, um, because we were we were playing and we would get really, really, really hot, and I remember us saying, what I really want to do is go home and like take an ice bath, because I'm so hot, and I remember one of my coaches going, don't do that, there was like a missionary in India that died that way, <laughs> I'm like, what, the, then I'm reading this, I'm like, my coach knew Reginald Heber, <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> do not shock your system like that. Anyway, to us, at least in the United States, he's more renowned for his hymns and some of the ripple effects of the hymn writing. He's the guy that wrote Holy, 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 uh, Lord God Almighty, which is one of my all-time favorite hymns. Love this hymn. That's Reginald Heber that wrote this. He's also the guy that wrote a lesser-known thing called From Greenland's Icy Mountains. Oh, so you know that. Okay, good. Where it's all about bringing the light of the gospel to, uh, to heathen around the world. I'm just going to give you a quick sample of lyrics. From Greenland's icy mountains, from India's coral strand, where Africa's, oh, I didn't have time for the A, but where Africa's sunny fountains roll down their golden sand, they call us to deliver their land from error's uh, chain. Uh, another verse he talks about, uh, though every prospect pleases and only man is vile, in vain with lavish kindness the gifts of God are strown. The heathen in his blindness bows down to wooden stone. It's like God has given them so many blessings, and still the heathen wants to give credit to blocks of wood and chunks of stone. Now, when you understand Reginald Hebrew's heart, I mean, then he went to India, and he's just like, I'm not going to say you have to become Europe. You know, I, I want you to be Indian, but I want you to be Christian Indians. He's got a good heart. And yet, there was a young Indian barrister that was listening to this hymn when he was attending church services, and was specifically offended by this hymn saying, no, 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 man isn't vile, man is inherently good. I, I refuse to believe this hymn. Anybody know who this is? This is Gandhi, and this is one of the reasons, that hymn is one of the reasons that Gandhi specifically cited why he believed that Christianity was not the religion for him. He was actually a seeker, and he wanted to know if this was a good religion. He's just like, no, if, if Christianity says that man is vile, 
Good, it's not for me, because man is inherently good. Uh, I kind of wish that he'd seen some of the pictures I saw on, on Google, um, and yet he was quite certain of that. Oh, well. Same year, 1823. Same year that the Reverend Howes began to help his parishioners with their burial problems, because in London, space is at a premium. There's only so many cemeteries in London, other, and, and you've got to pay through the nose to get into them, or you've got to go outside of town, which is complicated and expensive. So he started charging his congregation 15 shillings to properly inter their deceased. That's, that's only like $115 today in today's money, when, you know, back then it could cost 10 times that much. But, but they're like, oh, what a good pastor. He takes care of his people. What a steal. It is a steal, unfortunately, because instead of taking his congregation's families and burying them properly, he just put them under the floorboards of the church, the building that they were in, and stacked them up in the basement. No, this is the guy we were talking about. Oh, this is when this happened. Yeah. No, this is this guy. Actually, you'd be surprised at how many people just did this. But he became famous for this because he put over 12,000 corpses in the basement. And as they desiccated and were small, he could just shove them into the, into the corner and stack more on top of them. Didn't even put them in coffins. I mean, he'd show them in coffins and then dump them out of the coffin and, and just shove them down in the basement, which is why he didn't have to spend much money on coffins. And so as, as we... Well, no, this is part of why, as we've said before, people couldn't understand why it always smelled so bad in the church building, or why church members got, were sick all the time because they weren't cleaning the, the, the place, or why the food in the church spoiled almost immediately when you put it out. It was just nasty. The next owners of the building didn't clean up anything. They just put down an extra layer of flooring and made it into a dance hall. Ah, to have lived in the 1800s when men were so clearly inherently good, right? Because people are inherently good, right? Not so much. When did they, when did they discover? Um, like, uh, something like 1840s or 50s. So he did it for like 20 years. But he was gone. Like, he didn't get... Yeah, tried. no, he was gone by then. That's so how they did they find it before the dance hall? And yeah. Did yeah. the dance hall, they, they just... There's like, well, if the problem is the smell, we're not going to go downstairs and clean it up. Uh-huh. Yeah. 1827, John Darby founded the Plymouth Brethren. So if you've ever heard of the Brethren Church, the Christian Brethren, 1827. Darby was a curate in, um, in the Church of Ireland, kind of like a, a parish priest. He's, he's, he helps um, curate the, pa- the parish. He uh, had a particular ministry in converting Catholics to Protestantism. He's in Ireland, and he loves reaching out to Irish Catholics and helping them see the error of their ways. Um he also, though, came to believe that even the Church of Ireland is, is messed up. He's like, we just keep shellacking way too many layers of traditions and uh, non-biblical doctrines. Not even necessarily anti-biblical doctrines. Just they didn't come from Scripture. And so we keep laying this over and over and over the, the Bible until we're, we're having trouble even seeing the Bible anymore. So we met with a dentist named Anthony Norris Groves, who went on to become the first modern missionary to the Muslims in the Middle East. And with a Prussian immigrant named Georg Mueller, who ended up becoming George Mueller, uh, who had a massive uh, missions to orphans around the world in English-speaking places, all of these guys come back to this movement of, of, the, of the brethren. And they said, why don't we just be brethren, just brothers together? Not a new denomination. Let's just go back to the Bible and do what the Bible says. Instead of all these dogmas and all this tradition and all this stuff that we're just like, well, you have to meet in a church building. Well, it has to be across the wall. You have to sing. No, you don't have to sing. You have to sing this. No, you don't have to sing nothing. Is any of that in the Bible? Let's just get back to, what does the Bible say? Let's do that. Are you hearing that there's a ton of groups out there doing this right now? Independently, there's a ton of groups saying, why don't we just get back to the Bible? Why do you think that is? All of a sudden, in the early 1800s, there's an explosion of Churches of Christ, the Brethren, all these different things saying, why don't we just go back to the Bible and forget all this denominational, traditional, dogmatic division? There's a ton of denominations right now. Okay, yeah, that would suggest something about that there's not only a ton of denominations, but that there's a lot of division between them. Anything else? Maybe yeah, God's Spirit just works in a way that uh, you can't explain human-wise. Yep. I think that's a good one. That maybe God's spirit is, is moving. They're like, you know, He's not moving because 
we did this dogma instead of that one. He's moving because he's moving in his Holy Spirit. Yeah. Everybody thinks everybody else is doing it wrong. Well, and and if you have this explosion of, of revival and people are, are coming in the little more, people are actually doing what like Jean Calvin and Martin Luther and Menno Simons did, and they're starting to read the Bible and going, Have you noticed we're not actually doing it this way? Wait, did you notice that and so increasingly it's like every time and they keep doing this. I mean all those guys started with, hey, let's go back to the Bible, right? And then by this time, by the time you say Calvinist and Lutheran in the eighteen hundreds, that's more than let's just go back to the Bible. And so it just keeps layering itself on. So Darby helped create a new way of looking at history. Um, The old way had become known as covenant theology because it was based on the idea that God had worked in a whole bunch of covenants over the years. There had been the covenant of works that that, that reality used to work under and all sorts of sub-covenants like the covenant with Adam where God was going to just live with him and Adam was going to walk with God and everything was going to be great and then that didn't make it past the fruit. The covenant with Noah, um, where he said, I'm not going to destroy the earth again by flood. The covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David. All these sub-covenants, but they're all part of the if you do stuff right, everything will be cool with all of us. Uh, I will be your God if you keep doing things right. In Christ, God instituted a new covenant of grace where works are no longer the foundation for our relationship with him. Now now it's just, I want you to do stuff right, but whether you do or not, I'm going to be your God. Covenant. Theology. Pardon me? So, in this, the church has become the new Israel. And all the covenants and all the promises that were made to physical Israel now also apply to the church. Because the church is the new Israel. But there are actually some offshoots of covenant theology that say the church has supplanted physical Israel. They're not just along with Israel as the people of God. Now, they are the people of God, and Israel is not the people of God. But those are just offshoots. In general, the whole point of covenant theology is everything that has come before is still technically valid. It's just been nuanced by all the covenants that come after that. But they're all still valid. All the promises are still valid. All the relationships are still valid. So physical Israel is still the people of God. It's just the church is more so. What year is this about? Oh, this has been working forever. A lot of people. Um, uh, arguably, um, Calvin was arguing covenant theology back when he was writing 300 years before. Replacement theology is to say that the church has now replaced Israel. All the places where you see physical Israel in the Old Testament, you can now go, Church and stick it in there. Darby says instead of thinking. What that's based on is the replacement. I mean, no, no, replacement. You can see a replacement as an offshoot of this, or as part of Darby's view of dispensational stuff. Because he's like, instead of seeing it as a series of layered covenants, what we need to see it as a series of distinct dispensations, which is why Darby's has come to be known as dispensational theology. And so there's different dispensations where God deals with his people differently because the spiritual conditions have changed. God doesn't change, but the way he's dealt with people have changed. And so the way he deals with Adam and Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses, and for most people, they sit there and they go, I don't understand what the difference is. And all these, you're talking about God deals slightly differently with different people based on different times, and then other things come and change how that works. I don't care whether that's a bunch of covenants or a bunch of dispensations. Why? You know, most people, it's, it's not that big a deal. There are some important differences, though. I'm going to talk about two quick differences between the two of them. In dispensational theology, each dispensation supplants the one before it. In covenant theology, technically, they're just layered over one another. And all the ones that have come before are still just as valid. In dispensationalism, each one has supplanted it. There was that age of innocence. That doesn't exist anymore. Now there's the age of conscience. And then there's the age of human government. Then there's the age of promise when you start having this, this sense of Israel. Then there's the law. Then there's the church age where you're under grace. Eventually there will be a millennium. These are changing what has come before it. So in the church age, now we're talking replacement theology, church age has, has replaced physical Israel as the genuine people of God. Though ironically, there are progressive dispensationalists that say, no, 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 the church has just been added to the people of God. And you look at it and you go, so you, you replacement covenant theologians and you progressive dispensationalists, yeah. You guys 
that could just sit there and eat pizza and agree with one another all over the place, right? Because, no, they hate each other. Hate each other with hatred. Final dispensation comes, this is the second major difference, when Christ returns and establishes his rule for a millennium. You've heard of the millennium if you make a nice capital M on it. So before the beginning of the perfect eternal life with the Lord that we're all promised, there's going to be a tribulation, there's going to be a final rebellion by Satan, there's going to be a thousand years where Christ will reign, and God is going to fulfill all of his remaining prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet. You've read Left Behind, you've got a basic idea of what these guys are talking about. So, to covenant theologians, in general, the, the world has moved from hardship and works to grace and joy. Things are getting better and better, in general. To the dispensationalists in general, history has moved from innocence to grace to hardship, and then eventually will move to joy. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. Now, that's a huge oversimplification, but in general, that's what the covenant theologians would say, things are going to get better and better, and then Jesus will come back. In general, the dispensationalists will say, things are going to get worse and worse and worse, and then Jesus comes back. So which one is right? And why do they hate each other so much? If you go, well, they're not that huge a difference. Why do you hate each other so much? Because they're close. Because they're close. <laughs> I can sit there and think that people in Seattle are kooky, but it's those people in Tremont who are really messed up, right? Because they're so close to the way I think. The closer you are, only a brother can really hate a brother. It's, it's, it's just, you now. They're close enough that they're like, oh, you're so close to right, but you're doing it wrong. So let me hate you much, much more. Now, what's interesting is uh, dispensationalism really kicked off about 90 years later when the Schofield Reference Bible came out. Uh, a guy named Cyrus Schofield made a really good reference Bible. He put in all sorts of uh, in-page, on-page commentary notes, which nobody had seen since the Geneva Bible. Remember when we talked about that? Since then, nobody's been putting like study notes on the actual page that the study notes refer to. He came up with all these uh, great cross-referencing tools and stuff. He, he, he put in maps. He put in a chronology of biblical events based on Usher's. Remember when we talked about Bishop Usher and his, his Usher's idea that the Earth was was created on October twenty-second, four thousand four B.C. Most people have never heard that until the Schofield Reference Bible came out. And all of a sudden he's like, and here's clearly what this is. People read the Schofield Reference Bible and they said, oh, finally, the Bible makes sense to me. This is, is the real Bible. Um, most homes in America in particular had a Schofield Reference Bible. And my mom had a Schofield Reference Bible. And she wasn't even remotely in this particular camp. And she had a Schofield Reference Bible. Because that's the only reference Bible that's out there. So suddenly everybody has heard of this. Everybody's familiar with this. And then World War I came along. Was that a nice, happy war or a really, really nasty war? People came back and wrote you know, Hemingway books. You know, They wrote The World Stinks over and over and over again. You had flappers going, everything that came before, I want to completely throw on its ear. Because the world is a horrible place. Let's just get drunk a lot. Which led to things like prohibition. So, I mean, it's... It, but suddenly, it made sense to the general populace. They're like, you know what? You're right. I think things are going to get worse and worse and worse before they get better. There are whole articles, like in the New York Times, talking about how covenant theology is pie-in-the-sky hopefulness. But dispensationalism, that's the one that actually makes sense, given the world we live in. When secular people are writing, clearly, the dispensationalists are right, your theology has just caught on both. But even within that, even within that non-denomination, you have doctrinal chafing. Because the whole idea was that we were going to, to draw a healthy circle. That was what the, the image that Darby came up with. It's a healthy circle just big enough that includes all the really actual honest-to-goodness Christians, but small enough that it doesn't include all the people who only think that they're Christians. Because there are people who are born and raised in the church, and they assume that because they were born and raised in the church, they're Christians. Which is, is not, it's not accurate. Just because you're born and raised in a church doesn't make you a Christian. Unfortunately, I mean, somebody has to figure out what the diameter of that circle is, right? So you have the... It's like the 44,000. Yep. And now we're back to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. But Darby drew, he created a group called the Exclusive Brethren, who worshipped an increasingly smaller circle. 
while Groves and Mueller emphasized missions and an increasingly larger circle. They had their group called the Open Brethren, or over here in the United States we just called them the Christian Brethren, because they, they found it, what it amounted to their own denomination. So this is where that whole concept of Brethren comes out of. But it started out as we're not a denomination. Exactly. It very quickly became, but you're my brother, my brother who helped me establish this non-denomination. You're doing it wrong. I can't worship with you. It's like, isn't this exactly the sort of stuff that you just got finished saying you wanted to change? <sighs> Humanity. <laughs> All right. Luckily, in 1827, Joseph found his golden plates. Because he's been looking. He said he'd been told about the plates in 1820. And he said he found them in 1827. Um, never told anybody anything about any of that until the mid-1830s. But hey, he claimed that in 1823, the angel Moroni visited him to tell him about the plates. Moroni had actually been a Jewish prophet in the tribe of Nephi that nobody's really heard about, a group that supposedly sailed the New World in 600 B.C. And so Moroni was one of their prophets, and he was the last prophet to inscribe the Word of God onto the traditional golden plates, as Jews didn't. Um, but, you know, but, I mean, nobody's ever inscribed things on golden plates, but he did. Um, apparently in the New World, it was all about inscribing things on golden plates. Thus... Before he died, Moroni buried the plates and said, Lord, I just pray that somebody righteous finds them someday. So Moroni was so righteous that God made Moroni into an angel, because that's where angels come from, right? You die and you become an angel. No. Uh, but God made him into an angel, and he was tasked with guiding Joseph Smith to them. That was his whole job. Which is why in the Mormon tabernacle they have an angel on the top of the pinnacle as opposed to a cross. Um, number one, to distinguish themselves from Christians, and number two, to honor the angel Moroni. So if you see the angel, that's that's why they do that. Although technically, Smith um, originally called him Nephi, and sometimes called him Nephi, and sometimes called him Moroni, so we don't necessarily know exactly what his name was because the story kept changing, except that all the stories have eventually gotten harmonized, and, and even the times where Smith wrote Nephi, Smith has um, now written Moroni. So that's all been fixed by the Mormon church, so it's, it's, it's Moroni now. Anyway, so Moroni tells him about the Golden Plates in 1823, and over the next several years, Moroni keeps leading Smith into the forest to look for the Golden Plates, which always bothered me, because I'm like, if your whole job is to get into the plates, did it take you like four years to do it? I know. That was thousands of years ago. Yeah, but his little peeper thing should have been able to get it. So he eventually finds them. So he eventually finds them in 1827, supposedly, and decided about translating them, since they've been written in Reformed Egyptian, not English. By the way, nobody's ever heard of Reformed Egyptian. No Egyptologists have ever heard of Reformed Egyptian. It's like it's not a, it's not even a language. Smith showed a facsimile of the script to an Egyptologist named Charles Amphan, who said it's nothing but a singular scroll. It's not even all from the same language. This is nothing. This is this is absolute dreck. This is not a language. Forget it. So, how did a relatively uneducated man like Smith translate the Reformed Egyptian if trained Egyptologists couldn't do it? He used the peep tone technology. Even though it couldn't find it. Sorry. He... He had a special set of glasses that were made out of two peep stones. Okay, now we're getting awfully hostile toward the Mormons. I'm just telling you what actually happened. He made, he made special glasses out of peep stone technology that, yes, he technically said in under, uh, were abroad, but he called them, he said, these are the arm and the thumb that the, the Old Testament talked about. If you remember the Old Testament, the arm and the thumb were more like flipping a coin, but, you know, Anyway, um, but though a lot of art it shows him, you know, with the with the plates, and he's translating it, sitting here, and you know, trying to use wisdom. This is not the way it happened. He didn't even say that this is the way it happened. Um, first off, he, he dictated them to his friend Oliver Cowdery, who then transcribed what Joseph said, but not like this. So this is another Mormon painting. You go, yeah, this is not what he said happened. Anybody know how this? Is? Isn't there a sheet or something? There's a sheet. You guys are good. 
There's a sheet that separated Calgary and Smith, so only Smith could ever see the plates. Because he's the only one that was ever drawn to the plates. There were a handful of people who testified that they saw the plates in person. Though all of them either later recanted or tweaked their testimony and or left the Mormon church. Uh, for instance, his friend uh, Martin Harris said, yes, I saw them, yes. And then finally under oath he said, well, with spiritual eyes, yes. Not with my physical eyes. But I did genuinely, literally, sincerely see them with my spiritual eyes after Joseph described them. Back at even previously written down in the King James. Because well, yeah, Oh, oh I see what you're saying. Yeah, you can, there's an argument out there that he's plagiarizing some existing novels that are out there at the time as well. Yeah. Um, so Smith would dictate his words to Calgary. I, I got to read, read the official statement of how this, how this worked, because you, you wouldn't believe me if I said it. Joseph Smith would put the seer stone into a hat and then put his face into the hat drawing it closely around his face to exclude the light, and the darkness, the, uh, and in the darkness the spiritual light would shine. A piece of something resembling parchment would then appear, and on that appeared the writing. One character at a time would appear, and under it was the interpretation in English, because if you've ever translated anything from one language to another, you know you can do it one letter at a time. Um, <laughs> Brother Joseph would read off the English to Oliver Cowdery, who was his principal scribe, thus the Book of Mormon, was translated by the gift and power of God and not by any power of man. Interestingly, Smith loaned the first 116 pages to Martin Harris so Harris could show them to his wife, who then lost the 116 pages. So you go, no big deal, because it was divinely inspired, right? But Smith said, no, 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 no. I am not going to retranslate. Those were lost to all time. I am not going to retranslate those 116 pages because I know what will happen. Evil men will find the original pages, alter the original writings, and then try to make me look bad by saying, see, he, he divinely translated them differently each time. No, nope, nope, they're lost all time because Martin Harris is an evil, evil, evil man and he'll burn now. Anyway, so to sum up, if I miss something. I think after that she's like, man, I'm glad I lost it. <laughs> Joseph Smith claimed to have translated golden plates that no one else actually ever really saw. Supposedly written in a language that no reputable scholar thought was any kind of a real language. Using the same sorts of peep stones that he later admitted in court of law had been a total fraud. To write a book that often plagiarized large sections of the King James Bible, stealing word for word, possibly other, other novels and things going on at the time. And telling the story of the Americans that no non-Mormon archaeologist non can find any kind of physical proof for and flies back flat in the face of every bit of archaeology that we do have. To sum up. That's uh, 1828. Uh, a guy named uh, Richard Whateley published his Elements of Rhetoric. He's another Church of Ireland clergyman. And he's a devout Neo-Aristotelian. He's like, you know, we, we need to get back to using logic and rhetoric and understanding how this stuff all works. In particular, he's like, I'm sick to death of all the rationalist skeptics, all these Enlightenment thinkers that say, if you're intelligent, you can't believe the, the Bible. If you're intelligent, you cannot believe the miracles. He's like, no, 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 no. We need to be able to believe the miracles of God using logic, using critical thinking. So you can look at Scripture and say, can a logical... I, I told you before, I sat on a plane with a, with, with a, with a logic prof or a philosophy prof who asked me, how can you be a, a, a philosophy prof, how can you teach logic and critical thinking and yet be a Christian. And then we had a wonderful two-hour discussion about how you can use logic and rationality to be a Christian. Um, but Whitley was dealing with the same sort of thing 200 years ago. So in 1826, he published his Elements of Logic. 1828 followed it up with his Elements of Rhetoric, where he made a case for something he called presumption, namely that the status quo should logically be presumed to be true. Don't tear down a fence until you know why it was put up. If something is assumed to be true at the moment, 
you have to prove that it's false, which means that anybody trying to change the status quo has the burden of proof. You understand? So there's a presumption of innocence and the burden of proof. These have become so widely and immediately accepted that it became the basis for both English and American law. You are declared innocent until you are declared guilty, right? And if you like that system, that nobody can come along and say, Terry, you're guilty of something, and therefore we all consider you guilty until you have to prove that you're not. It's like, if you like the idea that you go, whoa, 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 yesterday I was innocent. I think you need to prove that I'm not innocent. Then you should think, wait, good Church of Ireland Christian saying, wait, that's not logical. That doesn't make sense. Same year, Webster publishes his American Dictionary. You're a big Noah Webster fan, are you? I am. Okay, good. <laughs> Noah Webster, by the way, this painting was painted by Samuel F. B. Morse, the same guy that came up with Morse code later on. Yeah. Wacky fun. Anyway, Noah Webster, strong Christian, but also a strong patriot. He had sided with the Americans, born in Connecticut, sided with the, with the Americans in the Revolutionary War. And he said, you know, controlling your language controls your thinking, and thus your moral behavior. So if we can just get this under control, if we can think about how we're speaking, how we're writing, we can help ourselves to be less wild and chaotic in this world. As he went along, he got more religious, and as he went along, he got more difficult, ornery. So like, he started off as, a, as an abolitionist, and he ended his life saying, well, we love up north, why do we care what's going on in the south? It's not our problem, we're not black. He started preaching against abolitionism, it got a little crumpy at the end. Anyway! But he published a number of grammar texts, and he published, ultimately, in 1828, his American Dictionary. Not only did it standardize um, the spelling of words, which, man, it desperately needed some standardizing. Nobody spelled things the same way. In fact, if you even looked at the way Smith spelled characters on that little sheet there, it's like, now, nobody's spelling anything the same way. He's like, please, can we please just spell everything the same way? But he also simplified that spelling according to phonetics. He's like, Compared to what it was, um, it is. <laughs> and away from the standardized British spellings of things. Because he's like, it's not a British, not British. It's not an English dictionary, it's an American Where? dictionary. That's right. American. <laughs> so, theatre and centre became theatre and centre because that's the way they sound, right? Um, check became Czech, because that's the way it sounds, right? He's like, just enough with the Britishisms and the Frenchisms and things. Let's spell things the way we spell them here in America. Booklet. All these different things, he's like, let's just spell it the way it sounds. The dictionary it became this bestseller, and what's cool is that it created a sense of national identity for America by giving us our own language, our own version of English, American and you know what? Today, we do not have control of our language. We constantly change words to be other things. Yep. And, and uh, well, yep. And, and uh, texting doesn't help with that in terms of grammar and things like that. <laughs> but, but we also just don't, we just don't understand our language. We don't understand what the words mean, which is why one of the things I always love to play with my kids with was etymology. Where does this word come from? What does it mean? Can you figure out what it actually means? And remind me sometime to talk about my, my bugaboo about the concept of the golden goose. There is no golden goose. There was never a golden goose in mythology, ever. There's a goose that lays the golden eggs. The goose wasn't gold. It torques me off. I was talking to them about that the other day. We happened to be watching something last night where somebody said, ah, he's the golden goose. I'm like, you're kidding me. We just talked about this two days ago. <laughs> Words mean stuff. 1830, Smith publishes his Book of Mormon. He and his followers began baptizing people into the Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints. But you can understand, and the reason I say this is, because remember, there's all these churches of Christ. Let's just get back to the basics. This is a church of Christ. Of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. Similar to other churches of Christ that are around, it's like, let's go back to the way things should be, but based on the Bible, insofar as the corrupted Bible can be understood best by actually reading the uncorrupted Book of Mormon. Because the Book of Mormon was divinely written and divinely translated. So, obviously, it is more clear than the Bible. So 200 years and 3,913 textual changes later, talk to a good morning, they go, no changes here. 3,913 changes later, 
The supposedly divinely written and divinely translated Book of Mormon is now utterly believed by the, uh, by the more than 15 million worldwide members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. For the last couple of uh, decades, um, it has been one of the, if not the largest, fastest, not largest, fastest growing religions in the world. It keeps vying with Islam as to which one is going to be the fastest growing religion. Um, in the last decade or so, or two, um, there's a there's another church in the United States that has actually beaten Mormonism as being the fastest growing denomination in the United States. Anybody know what denomination that is? The Evangelical Covenant Church is is is, is, is in the last couple of decades has been named one of the fastest growing American churches because we keep bringing in new churches from other people's denominations who are looking for something that is less dogmatic and can allow you to believe whatever you want. Big circle. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for helping us to see a little bit of where we come out of. Lord, I pray, help us to be able to help us to be able to genuinely appreciate different lines of thinking, to understand where people are coming from, while at the same time taking a stand for truth. Help us to genuinely go back to Scripture, to do what the Brethren wanted to do, what the Church of Christ wanted to do, what the, the uh, Anabaptists had wanted to do, what the Moravians had wanted to do. Please help us, Lord, to, to do that. And yet, help us to remember, Lord, that all those groups eventually became their own denominations, their own ideas of what is only right in their interpretation. Help us, Lord, to genuinely hear one another, to genuinely learn from one another, genuinely understand that we are finite people looking at an infinite truth. But I pray, Lord, help us to stand on that truth. And help us to love one another well as an act of worship. In Jesus' name. <laughs> Amen.